This podcast is supported by Manitou Fund. We want to thank them for coming on board and, and helping to support this podcast. Really means a lot to us. Hey, yo, Zach, hey, I'm Minnesota and hockey and stuff in a federal podcast, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Iowa. Tell me more about that. About. About. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach, I can tell you about the uh, fieldwork, eh? <laughs> I can't tell where you're from when you talk like that. <laughs> I don't know either. It's like part, I'm not partly Iowa, up. partly Winnipeg. <laughs> Definitely not Minnesota. Well, Zach, we should probably talk about uh, the fieldwork podcast here today. Annie says, Annie says we should quit horsing around here. No dorking around on the fieldwork podcast. Only serious talk about sustainable agriculture. All right. Bring us in, Mitchell. I thought we were already in. Oh, all right. Well, so we're are you, stuck. We're going. You're the first part in the script, though. This is the part. Yeah, where I'm Mitchell Hora, and this is Fieldwork. And I'm Zach Johnson, and this is Fieldwork. Zach farms Minnesota. I farm in Iowa, and uh, today we're going to talk about the role of ag retailers in the conservation efforts. Really, ag retailers' role in agriculture and the future of agriculture. And yeah. Super important. How can they help sort of push the farmers into some new practices or at least stand behind the farmers if the farmers want to go into some new practices? What can we do to work together, really, so that we're not limiting each other on on these sorts of things? The flip side to that statement, though, retailers can be a roadblock to adopting sustainable ag practices. You know, if they're not into into conservation, it's just another person to have a conversation with as you're thinking about these things. And, yeah, the feedback can be good or bad. Yeah. It's not a... Not a cut and dry, black and white thing, right? It's a complicated relationship because your retailer essentially, a lot of the times for farmers, gives you a lot of advice on what inputs work well, what don't, what you should be using, what you shouldn't, you know, but they're, it's difficult for them, I think, to really come from a neutral place sure. because in the end, they're selling products and services, right? Their livelihood depends on yes. they've got to be able to make money. So there there can, of course, be a conflict of interest there. So, um, yeah, we're going to dive into that. Yeah, and I think a, a key thing there, though, is at the end of the day, though, the retailer has to have the best interest of the farmer in mind. If yeah. they're going to keep selling you inputs, Correct. they have to actually take care of you. For sure, yeah. I mean, we've all seen it, right, as farmers. You, can, you know which retailers have the best interest of the farmer in mind and, and which ones don't. I mean, you can you can see right through that. It's like any any other business. You know who you want to work with and who you don't. Well, I think we're, you know, Zach, we're going to dig into that here today on the podcast. We've got a couple experts in from AgView FS. Um, they're from Northern Illinois, Walnut, Illinois. And uh, so Samantha Schmidgall is the agronomy marketing manager at AgView. Samantha, give us your background and tell us what it is you do with FS. You bet. So Samantha Schmidgall, I'm from kind of north central Illinois, and I have worked in the FS system for the last six years. Um, Currently, I'm an agronomy marketing manager for one of our FS member companies, AgView FS. So I work with folks like Malcolm and some other salesmen across our five-county area on all of their fertilizer, chemical, and seed needs. Do you think, should we jump back first and explain what FS is? You bet. So um, FS is part of a grower cooperative. Our member company uses Growmark 
to not only bring on new products. So they do some um, product trials for us, some preliminary trials. They look at different companies for us to work with. Um, We're doing a lot on the technology side right now. And Malcolm, what is your role within uh, FS? Uh, I'm out of the Walnut uh, location. I'm a uh, crop specialist for AgView FS out of Walnut, Illinois. And from your position, Samantha, what are what are your thoughts on what uh, what retailers can do to help affect the practices out there on the farms? I think this has always been something that's important to me. Um, being a younger farmer, helping my family on our farm, um, being in my 30s, you know, I want to I want to see my kids be able to farm. I want the resources to be there. I want the safety aspect to be there, and. I want our ground to be in the best position possible when it's passed on to the next generation. So personally, it's always been something that I've thought about and been very conscious of. It's how can we make that a more broader scale thought and doing some of the things that Malcolm's doing at his location, like doing VRT lime across almost every acre that they spread, um, using MRTN to get a base for nitrogen. Those things are helping with cost, but they're also just genuinely doing the right thing agronomically. So how can we do that on a broader scale is something I think about often. So I want to make a couple of points of clarification there because you brought up a couple really good items too. That VRT line, that's variable rate, but MRTN, explain that a little bit more, the maximum return to nitrogen um, calculations. You bet. So... Entering our growers' information into MRTN, maximum return to rate on nitrogen, is something that we encourage all of our salesmen to do with our growers just to make sure that we're doing the right thing economically and we're doing the right thing agronomically. It doesn't do any good for anyone to put on an excess of nitrogen that's not getting used in the right way. So how can we take that nitrogen number back to a true dollar amount and do the best thing for our grower? So... I would say most of the time that MRTN is used, we might look at it as a one-rate application to get that number of nitrogen units that we want to apply to our corn crop based on the yield goal. However, we do a ton of side dress business, top dress urea, strip till. How can we take that one number of what that nitrogen recommendation is at that economic threshold and then be able to take that number and apply the four R's to it and be able to do the right thing for our grower. Well, and, and want to clarify there on the four R's being right place, right rate, right time, right product. Do you have any uh, stories, success stories that jump out to you that you can think of where you've seen success at, in a in the changing of an operation on a farm, or something that maybe somebody, wh- whether it be yourself or a farmer, has learned from these practices? Yeah, definitely. The strip till thing in our areas will become. Um, Quite the quite the thing. A lot of farmers are seeing the efficiencies of it, and it's it's going a long ways. What are some of the other advantages that you're seeing to strip till, and then what are some of the challenges that you're seeing from guys when it comes to trying to incorporate that on their farm? The challenge is um, as far as the farmer having the equipment to get the dry fertilizer to his bar. That's because everybody is limited on equipment and what it what it takes to get the product to the farmer. So what you're meaning there, like being able to actually, you know, as you're strip tilling, meaning not full with kind of conventional tillage, but just tilling a small strip of the soil, but then you can actually apply your fertilizer in with that. Um, but 
yeah, you have to be able to tender that fertilizer and stuff too. And you don't, if you're trying to get tillage done, you don't want to slow down to refill and actually get your fertilizer, like refill the tank and all that. And what's the thought process on the expense of that strip till rig? And, and is there any programs available for Illinois farmers to offset some of those costs? There are some programs available to Illinois farmers. Um, typically, they're through some of our fertilizer suppliers. So using things like Mosaic products, um, we work a lot with Mez and Mez-Z, so a phosphate product that has sulfur in every prill. You know, they can work with growers on kind of offsetting some of those costs. I think with strip-till, strip it's almost a culture change for growers when they want to look at a new practice and how that's going to affect their operation, it's not just looking at fertility. It's looking at how it's going to affect the operation as a whole. So Malcolm brought up um, when our growers buy a strip-till rig, a lot of the questions are, you know, how am I going to get the fertilizer to this bar and how am I going to do it timely? And working with folks like Malcolm and the guys at our facility, you know, we're able to orchestrate some of that. So ag retail has played a huge role in making strip-till possible for a lot of our customers in the area. Is FS helping out with some of that as far as meeting those machinery needs for the farmers? Do they do, they do some custom strip-tilling or do they rent out some of the applicators? Or what is FS doing to help farmers with that? Actually, at our location, we've got uh, two um, MOTAG units um, to put the dry fertilizer on, and we're also pulling anhydrous at the same time. You know, it's kind of unique to see the retailers like this taking the initiative to help farmers make changes like that. It's not necessarily a common thing um, to see them incentivizing that. And so can you talk a little bit, Samantha, about the the, um, the conservation push that you're doing out there with FS and, you know, the kind of the conflict of interest there where it might actually mean selling less inputs for, for you? What's your take on that? You bet. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we answer to our farmer owners. So being a true cooperative system, if we're not doing what our farmers and our farmer-based board want us to do, you know, we're, we're not checking the box of doing the right thing that day. So really, we have to look at what our growers want in our area, what's the route that we want to grow together, and using some of these conservation practices is certainly something that we want to do. Um Go, moving away from the fertilizer side, kind of, um, something that we do across every acre that we soil test, you know, we soil test in a grid sample, uh, two and a half acre grids, and we run micros on every single test that we pull, not a composite micro every single pull. So we're trying to do things that our growers are, we might have one or two growers that suggest, you know, hey, can you look at this? Can you see if this is cost effective for us? And when we find those things, we're implementing them across our company. So being out there and diversifying and trying to be the leader in conservation is something that we you know, tr- truly take pride in and our uh, customer owners do as well. You know, so right now you're looking at um, grid soil sampling and being able to make better variable rate recommendations based on that and utilizing the strip till is a help there. But, you know, what do you foresee coming that, you know, is – on the horizon that also gets you excited. You bet. So we we have partnered with uh, Sentara Drones and utilizing our new drone system, we have a precision person in-house who analyzes all of our soil tests, makes all of our custom recs for every field that we pull dirt on. He's now brought um, the drone system into his scouting plan to follow up on those farms. So I think that we are looking to gain some insights 
from our new fixed-wing drone on what's going on in the field, um, where do we have things that we can't quite figure out and we've been working on for multiple years. Everybody's got that field with the one, you know, five-acre corner that, what is going on there? I just can't grow good beans. Or I just have an issue with corn for whatever reason. Denitrification in this one corner, and it's not, you know, field drainage. <laughs> Being from central, north central Illinois, field drainage is a huge issue for us. Um, so how can we utilize that drone to take some pictures early in the season to get ideas of what's going on in a time frame where we can still do something about it. You know, I got the chance to fly one of those last summer, and I so they had me do the, you got to do like the double pump thing to launch it. You, you pump your hand once to start it and then throw it in the air. Did you crash it? No, I didn't crash it, <laughs> but when I pumped it the first time, like the wings are pretty big, uh, I wailed myself in the back of the head with the drone. Nice. Oh, yeah. no. But it started. Oh, that's good. And then I threw it and it took off. Yeah, yeah it was fun. Yeah. They landed it in the road ditch. It was pretty cool to see that thing go. Yeah. Pretty you cool. You know, I am glad our salesman did talk me into buying like an extra set of parts on everything. So in case I get excited and I go take this drone out instead of my precision farming coordinator, that if I break a wing off or something, we'll be okay. We'll be able to get it back in the air the next day. When it comes to the extra parts, did he include like a hockey helmet in case you hit yourself <laughs> in the back right? of the head? <laughs> he should have. A landing landing gear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What was the strategy to implement some of these ideas? I'm wondering if there was any pushback um, within the company that came back at you and said, hey, look, our job is to sell inputs. And so why why do we want to concentrate on making the farmer change practices that may change the amount of inputs that they want to buy from us? Was there pushback against that? And what was the strategy to, to get this implemented? We really didn't have much pushback, mm-hmm. and I think Malcolm can second that mm-hmm. too. If anything, it's really opened the doors to more opportunity because we have growers in our area that want these things that aren't able to get it from either doing things themselves and buying um, you know, direct from a supplier. Um, and other ag retail in our area has jumped on board with conservation as well. So it's, it's truly a team effort. Like We want to do the best that we can do in Bureau County. So along with that, a big conservation practice we talk a lot about is cover crops. How have you seen that conversation change with your growers over the last couple of, year, couple of years? Where we've seen the best results with cover crop have been multiple year studies. Nice. So when we're looking at our farmer demographic, it's the folks you know like Malcolm and I who have kids in the industry that are going to be farming eventually and going to be working in the ag industry. You know How can we set them up for success? And I think cover crops is probably a something that we're looking at really heavily to do that. What do you see as like some of the next things that they're also looking at? Like how has the rest of that mentality changed for these farmers in the last couple of years? So when people in the area see that we have more of these enduring farmer for our advocates, you know, for our, for the Illinois um, Fertilizer Association, there's a lot of guys that are asking like, how do I do that? How do I be a part of that? And it's, easy. We have a a nice scale that we can explain to them. So it's not only fertilizer, it's not only doing the 4R practices, but it's soil sampling on a grid. It's VRT application of lime, phosphates, and potassium. It's no applications on frozen ground. It's utilizing cover crops. It's using MRTN. It's applying fall nitrogen at the right time, Um, split application of nitrogen, nitrogen stabilizers, how can we use soil sampling throughout the season to monitor your nitrogen levels and then use cover crops at harvest, not only as 
um, throughout the growing season, but at harvest as well, um, and getting soil nitrate samples. So we have a lot of people that say like, hey, I see my neighbors doing these things. How can I be a part of that? And over the last three years, Malcolm has had 16 growers participate in this program. And that's 16 new growers because you can only participate once um, to maintain your, then you maintain your status. But there's 16 people in our community that have kind of jumped on board with conservation practices and they're continuing to drive the community in that direction. You know, they're being the true leaders in the area. Well, and in a lot of this, I think it's trying to be proactive and avoid regulations and stuff. But if not everybody's being proactive, then we're going to get regulated. Yeah. And then everybody's going to be up in arms about how, you know, how and why did this happen? Absolutely. And I think you can see that in some other states too. I mean, whenever I have pushback, I always remind people of the state of Ohio and some of the regulations that they have, you know, not being able to spread phosphates um, prior to excessive rainfall. I mean, in central Illinois last year, we didn't get rain, we got rain events. (laughs) So that really limits your window of being able to put on product. Yeah, it can be really just a lot of red tape. What's your view of the role of the ag retailer in five or 10 years from now in the future? I think the ag retailer is going to provide a lot of tools for the grower, and those that toolbox is only going to continue to grow. Um, looking at new products in the pipeline, things like uh, fertilizer additives. So we're looking at a product that you can apply to your dry fertilizer that could actually allow that dry fertilizer to work harder for the plant and be more available. So getting the data backed behind some of these newer products is going to make a big difference in where our business is in the next five to 10 years. So right now we're doing the legwork, doing the trials to kind of figure out what's going to work, what isn't working. And if you're not working with an ag retailer who's interested in doing those trials and working with those products, there's a potential for you to get left behind and you know miss out on some of the opportunities that others are going to be able to have access to. So feeding off of what you said right there, uh, how can we incentivize more retailers to promote sustainable egg? And as a farmer, if my retailer is giving me pushback against new practices, what can we do about that? You know, where, where do you want to see your business in five years and how can we help you get there? I think is the backbone of a, a lot of what we do. And we try products that Growmark brings to our attention. And we also try products that growers bring to our attention. So if your ag retailer isn't offering you, you know, some of these new products that you're seeing and reading about and you want to try, bring it up to them. Maybe they have something available to them that they didn't think you were interested in. Um, But it's all about just taking those little steps in the right direction. And that can truly make a big difference on your, on your farm. Yeah, no, that's, I think a good point there on that. It's the the companies that are bringing innovations to the growers, but also the growers bringing innovations to the companies too. Absolutely. Like be a partner. Well, guys, this has been really, really interesting to have, have you both on. We really appreciate your time and your work and, and being a leader in the ag retail space to work with these growers, to not only help them, you know, implement conservation, be more profitable in the short term, but you know, see the light at the end of the tunnel, see see a bright future ahead, and, and I really think it is there, Zach. Good. Yep. Before we go any further, it's time to take a quick break. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's now that time on the podcast where we check our voicemail box. Hey, guys. My name is Blaine. I'm 23. 
Uh, I'd be a third generation farmer. Uh, farm with my dad up here in northeastern Washington. We do about 2,000 acres. Uh, my question for you is, uh, how did you guys feel like you gained some equity or initiate the con- conversation to gain some equity in your family farm, whether that be financially or just a simple, uh, simple as a management standpoint? Um, whatever story or insight you have with that, uh, I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm having a hard time trying to figure out how to get myself more involved here with my dad. Um, anyways, I look forward to hearing your guys' podcast, and I've learned a lot from them, and always look forward to the next one, and uh, thanks, guys. Keep it up. Blaine, thanks for calling in. That's a, a common question I get, and one that I don't necessarily have an easy answer to. Um, I know, like, in my case personally, it's a step-by-step process. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get in... 5 10% at a time, and then we break apart the acres and the machinery and uh, the grain storage system, and it's it's not a simple process. It's it's not easy, even as a third generation as you are, as you know, to, to be able to step into these businesses, which have become pretty large. It's not a simple process, even though you are the next generation that wants to move in and, and try to figure it out. So I I don't know that I have any any real great answers for you. I know there's a lot of resources out there to help you through that. You might have some state resources through um, extension programs or USDA, stuff like that, where you can, can talk to people about some options. Um, as I say, in our case, you know, we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. Um, one thing I will say is make sure that uh, the family, the entire family is all on board. If you have siblings that are or are not involved in the farm, make sure everybody's on bar- board and knows what's happening. Uh, that, you know, family family issues a lot of the times, unfortunately, are the demise of family farms. So make sure everybody's on board and everybody's involved in the conversations and everybody's open uh, and transparent with each other as far as what's going on. Um, thanks for calling in. Wish you the best of luck. Hopefully you guys uh, can figure some stuff out. That's going to be it for the Fieldwork Podcast today. Thanks to all the people who help make this podcast possible. Annie Baxter, Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Kristen Schmidt, Eric Romani, and Lauren Humpert. Our theme song is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans with help from Corey Shreppel. We're on YouTube at Fieldwork Talk. And our website is fieldworktalk.org. We are also on everything at Fieldwork Talk. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it you name it we got it that's right if you like the show um, it'd be awesome if you read our review and we'd love to hear from you through our voicemail system and uh, we might play you on our show leave us a comment or a question at 651-228-4810 that's 651-228-4810 and until next time thank you everybody for listening we are soil thankful to have you guys nail it (laughs) (laughs) 